and what a great song. Have you ever received a gift so extravagant or so meaningful that it just kind of melted your heart and you wanted to give back more than what you had? You wanted to, to uh, you just wanted to give that person everything. In 1994, through this study of 1 Peter already, y'all have heard a good bit of our testimony of Katie's birth and some of the struggles that we had with that, especially two weeks ago when we looked at the text on, uh, on, on the living hope that we have and, and how we can face suffering and even in spite of uh, whatever we go through because of the hope we have in Christ. So you've heard some of that. And uh, for those of you that weren't here for those times, we had a daughter that was born in July of 1989. And uh, just a short of it, within the first three years of her life, she'd had over 20 uh, surgeries, 400 days, inpatient days of hospitalization. And, and it was uh, several times, you know, we were told she may not make it through the night. So that's the kind of struggle and difficulty that I'm talking about. In, in 1994, I had been pastoring at May First Baptist Church for three years, a little bitty church in a six-men football town. We weren't making a whole lot of money, and uh, I was driving a bus to make extra money. Our third child had just been born, and in the, the, the fall of 1994, I knew that I knew the Lord was speaking to me to call, calling me back to, to seminary, to go back to seminary and get my master's degree. I had tried to start uh, the year after Katie was born and, and had to drop out of school because Katie spent long uh, times of period in the hospital, uh, more than a month at a time and on a couple occasions. And so I knew that the Lord was calling me back and I began to pray about it. I, I began to walk through the process, but I had no way to pay for it. And I, I, all I could do was just say, Lord, if you're calling me, I know that you're going to provide I went through the process, got signed up for classes, and in, at Christmas, I was at my parents' house, and my mom pulled me aside and said, uh, God has told me to pay for your school. Now, my mom and dad didn't have money. My dad was a bricklayer, and he was close to retirement, but my mom was a seamstress, and she was really good at it, and, and she sewed for the community. She sewed for the police department. She sewed for the, the ambulance crew. She would sew patches on their uniform. She did all, but she'd always done it for free. And what she did was she put a tip jar by her sewing machine at her house. And through that tip jar, she paid for my seminary. Now, if that's not a motivation to do well, I could not approach seminary halfway. I couldn't not give it my all. When my mom literally was sewing her fingers to the bone uh, to pay for seminary. And, and out of gratitude for her, I wanted to, to do my best at what God had called me to do. That's where we are in 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. And in this text, we have Peter challenging us in light of what we've just studied, in light of his introduction here in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, to live a life deserving of the gift that we've received. Let me read the text. We're beginning in verse 13, and we're going to cover a lot of territory today. We're going to read verse 13 down through verse 25. It's all one unit. The Scripture says here, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, 
be sober-minded, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Now, I've taught you all well, and I hope those of you that have been around a while understand that when you come to a text like this that begins with the word, therefore, you need to pause and ask, what is the therefore there for? Because it points back to something else. Peter is about to give a difficult lecture, okay? He's about to tell us something tough. In fact, when I read this text, you, you know, you, you, you read through a book of the Bible, or you, you read through this text quickly, one of the first things that comes to mind are hell, fire, and brimstone preachers. You got to be holy because God's holy, you know, and, and you've got to learn to live a holy life. You got to be, but that's not the tone of this text. I want you to hear the tone of this text, and I, I hope you did even in my reading of it. But Peter says, therefore, do these four things. He's going to give us four imperatives, four commands, but those commands are given to us based upon what he just wrote. If you look at the immediate context of what he just wrote, you go back to verse 10 through 12 when he says concerning this salvation. Last week I preached on this marvelous salvation that we have from Christ, a salvation that was so marvelous that it was predicted by the prophets who diligently studied it and looked into it, trying to figure out when it was gonna happen, when this Christ was gonna come and what he was gonna do and how he was gonna suffer. The, the, the prophets diligently examined and investigated this salvation. And this salvation is so precious and so wonderful and so beautiful that angels kneel down at the threshold of heaven and, and, and look into the beauty of this glorious salvation. This gift of salvation that was given to you and I as a living hope, bought by the blood of Christ, God's own son, and, and you, you, you look at where he says, therefore, 
and you look back at what's he, why is he calling us? Why is he going to give us these four commands? You can go back and read over and over verses 3 through 12, but then he doubles down on it because when he gets further into this text, he just doubles down on the beauty of this salvation that was paid for by Christ that is imperishable, that is unblemished. Christ like a spotless lamb. And he even ends this pericope when he says, this word, this gospel, this story, it's the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So why are, why are we going to listen to what Peter says? Why are we going to obey these four commands about holy living? We're going to do it because we have received such an incredible, beautiful, precious, glorious gift. We've given an opportunity to walk in a relationship with a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us a horrible, brutal death. We're not called to live a holy life because of a religious exercise. I think far too often when we start thinking of how we ought to act as a Christian, how we ought to live life, what we ought to do and what we ought not do, we make this list of rules and regulations out of some sense of religion. God has not called you or I to a religion. He's called us to a relationship with himself through the, the shed blood and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that beautiful gift, because of what he's done for us and given us the gift of, a, of an inheritance we talked about last week that's imperishable, we respond to that gift. Peter's going to call us to respond to that gift in four ways. The first one is this. The first command given in this text is to set your hope completely on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on God's grace. You're not going to measure your, your faithfulness. You're not going to measure your relationship by how good you do. You're going to set your focus and your attention on Jesus and on the grace that he's granted you. When we look to the gift of grace, when we understand his love poured out for us, that is going to drive us to holy living. So we don't set our, our focus on the religion. We don't set our focus on the do's or don'ts. We set our focus, our mind, wholly and completely upon the grace of God. God's love and God's grace will drive you to obeying him and, 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 and loving him back far quicker than his commands or his demands. When my wife pours out her love and affection toward me, it, it drives me to want to show her love back, right? It, it, and it comes out of a beautiful place, and it's not because I've been ordered to do so or because I'm supposed to. In fact, every once in a while, y'all know I'm not the perfect husband, right? Y'all probably have that figured out. Every, and Susan's not the perfect wife. I know that that shocks some of you. She's pretty close, but she's not perfect. Every once in a while, something like this will happen, and it happened not too long ago. She'd been on her trip uh, with the girls for four full days, had a great time. I, a lot of that time, 
been working around the house trying to clean it up because we had the youth come into our house, our house on Wednesday night. I was going to be cooking for them and we wanted to get the house cleaned up and wanted to have it spotless for the, when, the, when the kids came. And, and so, uh, but she comes home and uh, one day, I believe it was a Monday evening, she was, she was working feverishly and I wasn't doing anything. I was loafing. I was taking a break. And she walked through and she made a comment to me that wasn't very kind. <laughs> and I made a comment back that wasn't very kind. You know, her comment was something like, why don't you get up and do something? You're not doing anything. I'm, no, no, this was her comment. I thought that you would want to help me. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, what do you think I've done for the last three days where you were out partying at Universal Studios with the girls? Her comment, I thought that you might want to help me, did not endear her to me in a way that it made me want to get up and mop the floor. Now, we talked about it. We worked it out. She apologized for what she said. I apologized for my attitude. And and we got past that. And a sense of obligation is like religion. If I feel like I have to do it, and I have to do it out of a sense of obligation, I generally am not very happy about it. But if I do it out of a sense of love and gratitude, we approach things with a whole lot better mindset. So, Peter used some metaphors here, and I want to remind you that Peter was not the scholar. Peter was a fisherman. So he uses a strange mixture of metaphors here. In fact, our CSB says, therefore, with your minds ready for action. Peter uses the word mind, but he uses a metaphor that means gird up your loins, which those two don't really go together. The, 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 you, you're familiar with this metaphor in Scripture that you that people would gird up their loins with the truth or, or with the belt of righteousness. You, you see that, that phrase, Paul uses that phrase to gird yourself as, as preparation for the race. But Peter uses a, that phrase here to gird up your bowels, which is what the word means, gird up your loins, but he attaches it to the mind. So gird up the bowels of your mind, okay? A little confusing there, but then he goes on to say, but be sober-minded, the idea here that Peter is saying is you need to, you need to be prepared to, to be girded up, ready, to, ready for the race, ready for what it is God has called you to do, and be completely sober-minded. In fact, he uses the word teleos there, to, to completely or fully be solely-minded, perfectly solely-minded or, or sober-minded, so that your mind is set on the grace of Christ. His focus, what he's telling us is your mind, your focus needs to be on grace. Your focus needs to be on Jesus. Your focus needs to be on the gift of God. So the first command he gives us, if we're going to live a life of holy living, you're going to have to be focused on Christ. Why would he spend such time and, and, and use such weird metaphors of, of like fighting to set your mind on something? Because he understands that if we try it on our own, if we try to live a holy life out of our strength and out of our religious effort, we will fail. But when we focus our attention fully and completely girded up and, and, and prepared for battle, looking to Jesus, fighting off the distractions of this world, 
then and only then are we going to be able to live the life that is pleasing and honorable to God. So set our minds on the grace that comes in Christ. The second command that he gives us is be holy. It's, it, it, beginning there in, in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The word holy literally means to be set aside for a particular use, for a particular purpose. It's, a, it's something that's special. A holy vessel in the, in the temple would be a, a vessel that was set aside for, for religious purposes as opposed to non-religious or sacrificial purposes as opposed to non-sacrificial purposes. And so Peter is calling us to choose to be holy, but why are we to be holy? Because the heavenly father who called us to a relationship with him is holy. Act like you belong to the family. He's your dad, act like he's your dad. If your heavenly father is holy, out of a love relationship with him, you're gonna wanna act like him. You're gonna wanna follow him. You're gonna wanna do what he's called you to do. Hear that again as you look through that text. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. You're no longer, you no longer belong to this world. So don't allow the world to mold you into its image, to conform you into the image of the world. Choose, rather, to look like, to live like your Father who's in heaven. Choose righteousness. Choose holiness. Choose purity. Because the one who surrendered his Son for you is holy. Choose to live like him. Since you're a child of the king, act like you belong in the household of the king, right? You want to live a life that, that honors and exemplifies this God who gave up his son for you so that you could be a part of his family. Now, that command, so the second command, be holy, is very closely connected to the third command that we have in this text. The third command is to conduct yourselves with reverence. Verse 17 says, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now, that's a strange thought, but ultimately, it's very closely connected to his last command. Be holy because your heavenly Father is holy. Act like you belong. Conduct yourselves with reverence. Reverence carries a sense of conduct yourself rightly in the fear of God. One way to, to look at that was when I was a kid, my mom had a phrase that I did not like to hear. Now, my mom was not afraid to take one of dad's belts out of the closet and use it to discipline me when I needed it. But sometimes I got that and you wait till your father gets home. 
And I did not want to hear those words because I had a healthy fear of my father. If, if my sin or my act of disobedience was so egregious that it brought dad's name into it and dad was going to have to deal with the discipline, I had a healthy fear of dad. It wasn't because dad didn't love me or I didn't love my dad. For one, I didn't want to disappoint dad. Reverence carries a, a sense, and that's why sometimes you'll see that word translated to, as fear God. Conduct yourselves with fear. But the idea here is that you belong in the household of God. You should act like you belong in that household. One of the, when our, our kids were young, one of the things that was perplexing to me is our kids would go visit a friend's house. And, and when they came home, their friend's parents would tell us what wonderful angels our kids were. And I thought, where are those kids when they're at home? But there was something about when they'd go to a, a friend's house or to a neighbor's house, they would act with their very best behavior. Uh, they didn't want to be, be, uh, be seen as something other than, than kind and respectful. When they come home, they just let their hair down and they just do whatever. Ultimately, God, Peter's calling us. And in fact, this is kind of the point Peter's making, because if you read on here, he says, right now, you're not in your final destination, okay? He says, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as long as you're on this earth now, if you're a child of the king, you're living in a foreign land. This world is not your home. There's that old gospel hymn. This world is not your home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Ultimately, this world is not our home. And Peter is calling us to act with reverence, to act, act like the children of the king, even though we're living in a strange land right now. And he goes on to say there that, that, any, that, that we're called to do that because of this incredible gift that we receive from Christ. Why, why ought we to live a holy life? Why ought we live with a, with a life of reverence to God and respect for what he's done for us, he gets to it really in verse 18 and 19. So because you were bought, you were redeemed from this empty life with, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last days, last times for you. And it's through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We ought to live a life of, of holiness and of reverence before the king of the universe because of the beauty of the gift that gave us that hope. You think of it this way, if, if I was to loaf, not take serious or take for granted the incredible gifts that my mother offered me. Now she was, it was an ongoing gift because she had to work for a couple years. As long as I was in seminary, she was continuing to work to pay that matriculation fee. 
the longer that I drug it out, the longer she was going to have to work to pay that matriculation fee. And if I was to loathe or give it uh, to, to, to be half-hearted in my studies, it would be dishonoring to the gift that my mom was giving. How dishonoring is it to the blood of Christ that was spilled to redeem you when you live your Christian life half-hearted? When you refuse to obey God's call on your life? When you allow yourself to be conformed to the image of this world and give in to the sin and the corruption that's all around us. When we do that, we're taking for granted the blood of Christ. This life is temporary. Peter tells us here, this life is empty. But you've been redeemed from it by the blood of Christ who is eternal. And in him, you have life that is eternal. The fourth command that we're given here, the fourth imperative, is to love fervently and consistently. Verse 22, he says, Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth. To be honest, that, that phrase, that, that first phrase of verse 22 confused me a little bit because it sounds like it's my job to purify myself, and I know that I can't purify myself. We, we, the rest of Scripture bears that out. So what is Peter saying here? Notice what, what Peter connects it to, though. It's your obedience to the truth. When you have chosen to say, Jesus is who he says he is, Jesus is Lord, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you surrender your life over to the Christ who died for you on the cross, you are obedient to the truth. And, and he summarized that almost like bookends when he says that this word, this truth that you're obedient to is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So once you have surrendered your life over to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, he is your Savior, he's the one who redeems you. It's not that you've purified yourself. Your only role in it was submitting to him as the Lord. Your only role was obedience to the truth when you chose to believe and put your faith in the Christ who died for you. So once you have been purified by your obedience to the truth, you need to show brotherly love. Look what he says. So that you, sincere, you are sincere in your love for each other. From a pure heart, love one another constantly. Let me pause for just a second here because we've talked about the importance of holiness and reverence, of focus on our attention on Christ, but this is probably the, the, the peak of the pyramid because when we understand the love that God has for us, that he put on display for us on the cross, when we surrender our life to him to follow him because of what he did when he died for us, the, the best way that we can respond to his love for us is to love those whom he loves. That's why Jesus said in John 14, or John 13, toward the end of John 13, that if, if for, you want the world to know that you're my disciples, you love one another. This is how the world will know that you belong to me, when you love each other. That's why Jesus, when he was 
when he was asked by the Pharisees to sum up the commandments and when he was driven to what's the most important commandment? He said, the most important commandment is this, to love the Lord your God. The second to it is love your neighbor as yourself. And so ultimately, in response to God's love, in response to what he's done for us by giving us this incredible, marvelous gift of salvation that comes through the blood of his son, this living hope, our response ought to be to act like we're one of his, to live a life in reverence and to live a life putting on display the kind of love that he had for us as we show that love to each other. Love one another. And he goes on to say, because you have been born again. The only reason that you ought to have to have to love one another is because Christ has changed your heart. If you have a problem loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, then there's something wrong with your love relationship with your heavenly father. It, it is a direct loving one another, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ should be a direct reflection of our love for our heavenly father. And if we truly understand the incredible gift of grace that we have through Christ, we will be impressed, we'll be pressed to love others the way that he loved us. Because you've been born again, not of something that's perishable, but something that's imperishable. And Peter points back to that idea that he had in, in the verse six and seven. And he says, most precious things in this world are like gold and silver. But you've been bought by something that's a whole lot more precious than that. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. That's imperishable. Gold and silver will eventually perish. God's word and what he has done for you will not perish. This is the gospel that's been proclaimed to you. How... <laughs> I started to title this, this sermon simply, What Would Jesus Do? How ought we respond to the love of Christ? Focus our attention on his grace. Live a holy life in reverence to God and love each other. It's pretty simple. But if you, if you take all of those 13 verses that we just read and, and you, you, you do a search and look for what are the four commands there, there's only those four commands. There's only four commands there. There's a lot of rich text, a lot of explanation. There's only four commands. Fix your hope, be holy, conduct yourself with reverence, and love each other constantly and fervently. That's the call. That's what it means to live a life that honors the gift that we've been given by God. His son who died on a cross so that we could have everlasting life. We ought to respond to that gift in those four ways. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.